You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome, welcome. Here it is Monday, and that means it's time for Fired Up, right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the show. This is Steve. I host each week, and uh, we've got a lot to talk about this week. Uh, Some really interesting things that have come out of the news. But as always, we're going to start off our show with our uh, COVID update. And uh, we'll kick that off right here. Uh, We have, as of today, we have 32.4 million cases of the virus reported. 576.9 thousand people uh, have died from the disease. And an astounding 242 million Americans have received uh, at least one vaccine injection uh, with some uh, 87 to 90 million uh, Americans having received uh, multiple doses of the vaccine. So we continue to move forward. We continue to fight our way through this. Uh, As always, you know, we want to make sure that we're following the guidelines and doing what we need to do in order to keep ourselves safe. I want to stay on the COVID subject for a minute. Um, This past Thursday, as I was driving home from work, uh, I heard an interesting interview on the Laura Coates show on POTUS. And uh, she had as a guest Dr. Lena Wen. And I know if you've watched any of the mainstream media broadcasts, the TV shows from the Big Five, OAN, maybe not OAN, but from the Big Five, you've seen Dr. Wen on uh, television discussing the COVID virus and the actions being taken by the CDC. Uh, She's one of the uh, well-respected voices and medical scientists that we've been listening to for the past uh, 16 months uh, as we've gone through this. And uh, the interview was about, excuse me, the interview was about an op-ed piece that uh, she wrote in the Washington Post on April 29th. And uh, it, it was an analysis and a reaction to the uh, speech given by President Biden before a joint session of Congress, uh, you know, the previous uh, days. And I want to kind of go through her op-ed and, and talk about it a little bit. Uh, so, you know, let me, let me kick it off. I'll read a little bit and then we'll, we'll discuss. So the article starts off. Uh, With his speech before a joint session of Congress on Wednesday night, President Biden missed his biggest opportunity to reduce vaccine hesitancy. The problem is in the context of his speech. It was the setting. The 200 attendees entered the 1,600-person capacity house chamber, spaced apart and wearing masks. Some appeared to be double-masked. They were asked not to make physical contact, though some still fist-bumped or shook hands. There were markers indicating which seats could be occupied with numerous empty spaces in between. As the president spoke, the vice president and speaker of the house sat behind him, both clad in masks. Uh, She goes on, if I didn't know better, I would have thought that this was six months ago before Americans had access to safe, highly effective vaccines. So, it, the, the, the point she raises here as she starts off is, is a very powerful one. Um, and, you know, it, it 
raises uh, some interesting questions that she goes on to discuss in the article, but most notably, it does in fact uh, indicate, and, and I agree with, the, the optics that it sends in terms of our leaders sitting there who presumably have all been vaccinated, uh, and yet they're still you know, following the mass protocol. Meanwhile, they're asking Americans uh, who have been you know, vaccinated uh, to you know, begin to go about their normal routines. Let me go on with, with some more information here. Uh, she talks about the work of the scientists around the world in creating the vaccines and uh, getting them through the testing phases and all of the elements to bring these, these miracle drugs to the marketplace. And, you know, she, she writes, how incredible are they? According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's latest report, there were only 7,157 breakthrough infections among 87 million fully vaccinated people, a rate of 0.008%. So let me, let me start, stop right there. Um, you know, keep in mind that, you know, we've talked about the numbers. I recited them here at the start of every show. You know, we talk about the number of infections we have, the number of people uh, who have died from the disease, you know, week over week. Um, but understand that one of the most important numbers that doesn't get a lot of coverage uh, is how many actual infections uh, have occurred among those that have been vaccinated. So according to Dr. Wen, who's citing the, the CDC's report, 7,157 breakthrough infections among 87 million vaccinated people. That's an extremely low uh, number, and, and saying extremely low is kind of an understatement. Um, so she continues, of course, you wouldn't know that vaccines are so effective by looking at the CDC's overly cautious guidelines. Already, a very damaging narrative is taking hold, and that is, if the vaccines are so effective, then why so many precautions for the fully vaccinated? What's the point of getting inoculated if not much changes? It's a key point because this is a big argument among the, the uh, anti-vaxxers, the people who are opposed to getting the vaccine at all, and you know, those who push back against the whole COVID-19 uh, protocol program. That is, if these vaccines are supposed to be so good, why do we still need to wear a mask? Why do we still need to follow these certain protocols and so forth? Um, you know, it, it's, it, it's a clear indication, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to bring this up, because uh, hearing her discussion on, on the radio got me thinking and saying, she's right. You know, if, if we are vaccinated and the vaccine is supposed to protect us from the disease, then, you know, we should be able to attend events and functions where, you know, people are vaccinated. We should have, you know, requirements um, about how we allow people into venues and so forth. Um, you know, she goes on to say perhaps Biden wanted to differentiate himself from his predecessor. To be sure, it was horrific to see President Donald Trump's many maskless, packed super spreader events in the midst of the worst of the coronavirus surge. But the message coming from Biden isn't right either. Overcorrection has a price. At best, 
it makes public health measures seem performative rather than science-based. At worst, it calls vaccine efficacy into question. So Dr. Wen is making you know, a very powerful argument here. Um, she goes on to say uh, that another reason Biden may not have wanted so many in the room could be that the CDC is still, still cautions against large events. But the problem isn't that he'd have been going against CDC guidance. The problem is the guidance itself. The CDC needs to urgently change its recommendations to clearly distinguish between events in which anyone can attend and events that allow only those fully vaccinated. Proof of vaccination would allow concerts, theaters, and virtually all businesses back at full capacity. This has been key to Israel's health and economic recovery, and it has served as a powerful incentive to vaccination there. So, you know, the, the, uh, again, the points she's making here are very cogent, very powerful. You know, if our vaccines are so effective, then, you know, shouldn't we be able to reap the benefits of being fully vaccinated? And by extension, if, you know, those who refuse to take the, vac the, the vaccine, you know, are still required to follow, you know, protocols and so forth, and they see people who have been vaccinated more freely exercising that freedom, uh, that too would serve, in my opinion, as a strong incentive for getting vaccinated. Uh, you know, the, the article, you know, just to, to conclude here, the article goes on to say, imagine if Wednesday's joint session had required that all attendees be fully vaccinated. Those who were not vaccinated were not welcome, but those permitted in could walk into the room, take off their masks, sit next to one another, and listen to a presidential address, just as they did in 2019. The science shows that could have been done. It would have sent an unequivocal message that vaccines are safe, effective, and the key to ending the pandemic. Instead, the American people got a different message, one that could impede the nation's vaccine progress at a time when we can least afford it. So, as I said, as you know, as I listened to uh, her interview with with Laura Coates on POTUS, um, it, it got me to thinking, and really got me to thinking, uh, especially in light of the fact I get my second vaccine dose uh, a week from today on, on the tenth, and you know I, I'm I'm looking forward and enthusiastic about getting it because of an upcoming trip I have to take uh, going outside of the country to attend uh, a wedding, uh, my son's wedding in the Dominican Republic. So, you know, I'm concerned that I want to make sure I am fully protected before I set foot off American soil. Um, you know, and, and hearing Dr. Wen's arguments just made me think more about the fact that, you know, our leadership, our political leadership, both sides here, need to be, you know, reevaluating their messaging on the COVID-19 uh, treatments, on what we need to do, and really need to be advancing an idea that, you know, if you are fully vaccinated, that is, you, you've gotten the single shot or both shots of, you know, whichever the vaccines you take, and you're more than two weeks out from that final shot, uh, you are protected. You know, we have to go forward with that attitude in mind. Keep in mind, 
Every year in this country, we vaccinate between 180 and 190 million people against the flu. And even then, the incidence rate of flu symptoms is, you know, 0.002%, um, which is actually higher than the COVID-19 infection rate that Dr. Wynn mentioned in her article. You know, and, and granted, still there are people who, you know, who die from the flu, but the, the numbers, and, and, you know, I'm not making the, the numbers seem trivial here, but uh, 30 to, to 40,000 people a year die from the flu. But compare that to the half million people um, you know, who have died from COVID in just one year. So you know, we, we have to take a, a, an aggressive stance. We have to do what we need to do to protect ourselves, absolutely. But we need to believe that the vaccine is as effective as our doctors and our scientists tell us that it is. So, you know, an interesting, an interesting story, some interesting thoughts. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, uh, pro and con. Uh, if you, you know, don't want to get the vaccine, you know, I'd love to know. Send an email to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com. I really, really am serious that I would like to get response and see, you know, what it is that, that keeps you from taking the vaccine. You know, what, what makes you opposed to getting that shot? All right, um, so we'll uh, pivot away from there as we move into our next segment. So if you've been following the news uh, over the last couple of weeks, one of the things that you likely have heard about is that the House of Representatives passed a, uh, a bill that would grant Washington, D.C. statehood. Now, this is nothing new. Um, there have been efforts to make Washington, D.C. the 51st state uh, for many years, decades even. Um, but right now, the House passed it uh, along a party line vote, should be noted. Uh, and now it is headed over to the Senate, where the Senate will take up the discussion and, and vote on whether or not to make the District of Columbia the 51st state. So what does that mean? Well, uh, right now, the District of Columbia has a delegate in the House of Representatives, but no senators. Uh, it, it is, you know, the, the citizens there are required to pay taxes. They're required to do every uh, thing that, you know, any one of American citizens in any of the 50 states are required to do the only difference is they don't have an active voice uh, in the political system that our government runs on. That is, they can't vote bills up or down. You know, they can't do all of the things that uh, senators and representatives from, you know, full statehood states can do. And, you know, that is, for lack of a better definition or the best definition that fits, that is essentially, you know, taxation without representation. They have no voice in what is, is passed with regard to their district. They have no voice in, you know, making rules that would apply to their district, just as any state in the union 
can can pass rules or or get um, rules passed that would impact their state. So in in the discussion, what we have is uh, our our good friend uh, Senator Joe Manchin, uh, Democrat of West Virginia, that he's opposed to the House bill to grant District of Columbia statehood, uh, dealing a blow, you know where the Democrats uh, only have a, a one-vote majority in the Senate, um, you know, he's, he is opposing this, uh, you know, citing conclusions, and this was an article in USA Today, citing conclusions reached by past administration, Manchin said the proper way to decide D.C.'s future is through an amendment to the Constitution and not simply by passing a law that would be challenged in the Supreme Court. And he does have a point there. Uh, amending the U.S. Constitution is a tall hurdle, and we've talked about this on several other subjects on this show. At least two-thirds of lawmakers in both houses of Congress must first approve the proposed amendment. Then, legislatures in at least three-fourths of the states, and that's 38 state legislatures, have to approve it in order for it to take effect. Uh, Manchin is citing that they should, you know, propose a constitutional amendment and let the people of America vote. So, you know, he, he also cited uh, the 23rd Amendment adopted in 1961, which recognized Washington's autonomy by awarding the city three electoral college votes in the presidential election, but did not elevate its political status further. Uh, the Democrats passed the bill last week. Um, the, the bill passed 216 to 208 along party lines. Uh, a similar bill uh, came through the year before, and if I'm not mistaken, bills calling for D.C. statehood have been proposed by every cong Congress over the last 20 years. Um, you know, and, and it gets shot down year after year. Last year's uh, effort uh, and the one that is being proposed this year has a couple of new twists to it. Republicans are opposed to uh, D.C. becoming a state because it would tip the balance of power in the Senate further away from them. So if they made the District of Columbia a state, D.C. would get two senators, you know, arguably and presumably democratic. If they then followed through and, and did the same with Puerto Rico, and if, if the District of Columbia became a state, let me, let me assure you, you know, trust and believe that Puerto Rico would be you know, rolling up the road in, in, in you know, arguing their case to become a state, and that would give you know, Puerto Rico two more senators, presumably, again, Democratic. Um, you know, Mitch McConnell is, is calling this uh, a full-bore socialism on the march in the House. So, you know, it, it, it looks like it's going to be an uphill fight for the Democrats on uh, getting D.C.'s statehood uh, passed and, and onto President Biden's desk. You know, it would take every one of the 50 Democrats plus at least 10 Republicans in order to overcome a highly likely filibuster. 
which would require the 60 votes to bring the bill to the floor for a final vote. And right now, the Senate is not uh, inclined to get rid of the filibuster because, wait for it, Senator Manchin opposes it. So, you know, it, it's, it's a sticky situation, but one that, that needs some type of correction. You know, the, the article uh, concludes by saying, Manchin's opposition is likely to infuriate progressives who say GOP op opposition to D.C. statehood is unfairly depriving residents of a city with a population larger than at least two states, Vermont and Wyoming, from exercising their full political rights. Uh, the article quotes, uh, our founders built our democracy on a simple promise that every American should have a voice in our government. From City Hall to the halls of Congress, Washingtonians pay taxes, fight in our wars, contribute to the economic life of our country. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, uh, who gave that quote, uh, said at a news conference prior to the House passage of the bill, but for centuries, they have been denied their right to representation. So it, it, it's an interesting argument. Um, it, it just deepens the question that a, a lot have in, you know, what exactly is Senator Manchin's game? Um, you know, uh, understandably, perhaps, you know, his opposition to the filibuster saying it, you know, would change the 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 historic culture of the senate whatever that means um but you know he appears to be in in opposition to several issues and several pieces of legislation that would clearly benefit the people of this country uh, not the least of which it would benefit the people of his state uh, yet he stands opposed to it even though polls are showing that on on some of the issues that he's opposed to that the people of uh, West Virginia actually are overwhelmingly uh, in favor it by a significant majority so you know it, it raises the question uh, in his particular case but it raises the broader question we've talked about here on this show if there's an issue that has overwhelming support among Americans across the board. Now, I'm not talking about Republicans in support of Republican measures or Democrats in support of Democrat measures. I'm talking about measures that would benefit everybody. You know, and, and we need look no further than the infrastructure bill, than, you know, the approval rating for the recently passed uh, America Rescue Plan. You know, all of these these large endeavors that would benefit, you know, the the rank and file of the American people across the board, border to border and border to border. Yet our Congress and our Senate vote in opposition to it. And, you know, it goes, as I've said many times, we elect these individuals to go to Washington to do work on our behalf. And, you know, if if it is our will, if it's the will of the people that, you know, a vote on an issue be, you know, a yay or it be a nay, you know, but if you've got 70 percent, you know, or 60 percent or 80 percent, as some of these bills have garnered in in recent months and, and recent years, 
why are you not voting for them? Why are you not following the guidance we give you as the ones who elected you? This is an ongoing, um, an ongoing issue. It's one of the passions that drives this show. And it is one of our standing calls to action that says, you know, we need to be in touch with our elected officials all the way up and down the line. I say this all the time from the local to the federal. We need to be talking to our elected officials and let them know in clear uh, with terms, with no uncertainty what it is we want them to do. If we are opposed to a piece of legislation as an electorate, then they need to vote it down because we're telling them that's what we want. And yet, time and time again, we have seen over, over the decades, we have seen legislation that had broad and wide support across party lines get voted down you know, against the wishes of the people. Now, you know, an, an argument might be able to be made that, well, maybe they know better than we do. Um, in my opinion, and, and my opinion exclusively, that doesn't matter. They need to vote the way we tell them to vote. That's the way the system was designed to work by our founders. What they wanted was a representative government. So, you know, again, a call to action. You know, let's make sure we're communicating with our elected officials. If you've got an opinion on this, as always, fired up radio at yahoo.com. Send an email. Tell me what you're thinking. Let me know so we can talk about it. All right, we'll take our first break right here, and uh, we'll be right back after this short break. You're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio gets reimagined. We'll be right back, everyone. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places. So be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. And welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. And uh, we're going to pivot a little bit. And in this segment, we're going to talk about some uh, interesting comments that have been made in the in the public sphere uh, recently by elected officials. Uh, I'm going to start off, and this one comes out of uh, California and was reported uh, in the Los Angeles Times on April 29th and uh, has created something of a firestorm uh, here, uh, actually across the country with a lot of uh, uh, a a lot of comments and criticisms and critique. As as you know, on this show, we spend a great deal of time talking about um, 
digging for the facts, getting the facts right, uh, you know, uh, finding the truth regardless of where you get your information sources from, but going and, and looking at other sources just to make sure that you understand the underlying truth of, of an issue. And this, this article, as I said, was in the LA Times, uh, talks about a Temecula County City Council member who compared her fight against face mask mandates to Rosa Parks' bus demonstration for civil rights. Uh, this has touched off a weeks-long controversy in the majority white Riverside City, I'm sorry, Riverside County City, where residents are sharply divided over the comments and black community members have expressed anger over the remarks. The city council member, Jessica Alexander, a staunch anti-mask Republican, has not addressed the issue since an April 13th council meeting when she brought up the civil rights icon while expressing opposition to masks at an in-person council meeting. And, you know, she's quoted as saying, look at Rosa Parks. She was accommodated to the back of the bus, but she finally took a stand and moved to the front because she knew that that wasn't lawful. It wasn't truth. So she took a stand. At what point in time do we, Alexander said, I'm getting to the point where I'm getting accommodated in my office. I feel like I'm getting pushed to the back of the bus. Uh, you know, this created a controversy which bubbled for weeks uh, and was actually revisited uh, at a recent meeting where additional time was dedicated to reading public comments on the issue, which was first reported in the California newspaper, The Press Enterprise. The comments ranged from calls for her resignation to support for her rejection of mask use. And a couple of examples they cite in the article uh, says that one commenter wrote, her rants speak, I'm sorry, her rants reek of white privilege. Uh, another comment says, respect Jessica Alexander, Jessica Alexander as our elected official and discourage the rhetoric that she is culturally insensitive. Uh, so, you know, said, you know, Corey Jackson, who's co-director of the Moreno Valley-based Center Against Racism and Trauma, said in an interview that she should address concerns over her remarks. Her comments were very painful to the African-American community and as elected officials, if we make comments that cause trauma to another community, we have to own it and we have to seek to remedy it, Jackson said. People need to be careful when they try to invoke the words and experience of Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and all others. Uh, you know, it's, it, as I said, her comments set off a, a, a storm of controversy in California and, you know, across the nation in many areas. Um, you know, and, and really where she's trying to equate uh, the, the mandate in a community for wearing a face mask uh, to, you know, the, the struggles that African Americans or black people in this country went through uh, that were in part, you know, initiated by the actions taken by Rosa Parks. Um, you know, it is, it is clear that there is much more discussion needed on you know what exactly you know the issues are and you know are our elected officials 
need to you know be more culturally sensitive not not just to issues regarding you know black people in this country but to issues regarding everyone in this country um, you know whether it's white LGBTQ you know Asian you know uh, Hispanic Latinx whatever um, you know sometimes you, you just have to, to stop before you make these comments and, you know, take 10 seconds and think about it for a second. You know, we, we've all had those occasions where, you know, something that we wanted to say sounded good in our heads when, when we thought it up. And then when we, we speak it out into public, we realize that it sounds a whole lot different. Um, this is, you know, a, an extreme case of that. Um, you know, and it's it's just symptomatic of something that, you know, even in Temecula City, uh, you know, the, the article cites that this isn't the first time that Temecula City Council has drawn concerns over racially insensitive comments, as residents pointed out during public comment and in a public Facebook group dedicated to bettering police interactions with people of color. In June, shortly after the police shooting of George Floyd, Former mayor and current council member James Stewart wrote in an email that he didn't, quote, believe there has ever been a good person of color killed by a police officer, close quote. This statement also created a, a whirlwind of controversy uh, in the community and in, in the state of California and beyond. Stewart later said that the email, dictated via voice memo, mistakenly included the word good and that his comments were specifically in reference to his belief that no person of color had been killed by police in Temecula or Riverside County. Uh, as a result of his comments and the reactions to it, uh, Stewart had to resign as mayor. Um, you know, the, the idea that you can compare, you know, current events to past events um, really it must be done very carefully uh, to avoid just this type of situation. As we're going to see as we, we continue with this segment, um, there is a, a growing concern over the amount of what's called revisionist history that is being, you know, put forth in political circles uh, across this country. Um, you know, but, you know, to compare a, a mask mandate to the, the uh, actions of, you know, one of the civil rights movement's uh, icons, without question, uh, really reeks of uh, an insensitivity and, and a cultural lack of understanding that you know we have to address you know and we need to make sure uh, if you are in you know Temecula City in California um, you need to make sure that your city council hears from you and understands your position on this matter so and just as a side note um, I learned a few interesting facts about Rosa Park that I didn't know um, and and really quickly just to understand and fully understand the truth of the story, uh, at the time in Montgomery, the, the bus system, uh, the seating in the buses were divided into three sections. The first 10 rows were uh, for whites only. The next uh, 10 rows were uh, first come, first served. And the back 
rows were designated for you know uh, black people, people of color. Uh, Rosa Parks wasn't sitting in the back of the bus. She was actually sitting along with four other people in a row designated as first come first serve. When a single uh, white person came on you know, to the bus and, and the, that section was full, the bus driver ordered the four people in that row to get up and vacate the seats so that the you know, white person could sit down. Three of them did. Rosa Parks did not. Um, that's the way the, the story, uh, that's the way and the facts of the situation, that's what led to everything that came after it. So once again, and, and you know, I can be as guilty of this as anyone else, uh, you know, we need to make sure that we dig in and get to the facts of our stories and our history. And um, that's going to segue nicely into the next section I want to talk about. And that is that we've had a couple of incidents of, uh, you know, not only some, some racial insensitivity, but more importantly, some deep historic uh, in, insensitivity. And, you know, the, the, the first one I want to talk about um, on a, a, an article that came out on the 25th, uh, Senator Rand Paul, the Republican of Kentucky, um, suggested that new Republican voter suppression laws cannot be racist because many of the backers of Jim Crow were Democrats over 50 years ago. So let, let's, let's stop right here. Let's clear up the facts on that. So in the, in the early 70s and 50 years ago, we put it about 1971, um, in the South, the uh, Republican Party was actually the party for uh, social change and progressive issues uh, in, in the country. And the Democrat Party was actually the conservative, um, you know, party much akin to the descriptors we give, you know, today's Republican Party. What happened is, you know, over the course of the, the late 60s, you know, 60 from 64 on through is that many Southern Democrats seeing that the the uh, um, Democratic Party was going more toward social change uh, based on, you know, the optics and the impacts of the civil rights movement, they moved over to the Republican Party and the Democrat Party uh, became more of the progressive party that we see today. So, you know, in his first comment, you know, Senator Paul is inaccurate um, in that, you know, there, there was a, a, a huge upheaval in the Democrat Party uh, at that time. And in fact, you know, most people by the, the early 70s were actually uh, Republicans. So, you know, in the article, it goes on to quote uh, Senator Paul and saying, to hear all these Democrats shouting, Jim Crow, Jim Crow, do they not realize the history of the Democrat Party was Jim Crow? He continued that not any God-fearing Republican voted for Jim Crow, that Jim Crow throughout the South was done by Democrat legislators, that the people who were beating up John Lewis and the others marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge uh, were Democrats. Uh, and he goes on and he's quoted here as saying, I for one am sick, am sick and tired of Democrats, Paul said. 
They need to apologize for their history. They need to apologize for for foisting Jim Crow on the country. And they need to read the bill, and he's referring to the Georgia uh, election bill, uh, and realize that it has nothing to do with keeping people from voting. And, you know, there's a second point that we can take concern about. And, you know, if you've read the bill, uh, yes, there are some sections of the bill that do expand certain limited um, procedures for voting, such as, you know, a a slight addition of time for absentee voting and, uh, you know, some changes to hours. But it also severely restricted the number of of, uh, polling places, the number of drop-off boxes, and it gave the state legislature the the prior unheard-of power to remove the duly elected elections commission and replace it with a group of hand-selected commissioners uh, who would ostensibly vote in the direction of the party in power. So, you know, and he, he goes on to, to cite, you know, his, his disdain for, you know, the companies such as Delta and Coca-Cola and Major League Baseball pulling its all-star game out of Atlanta and, you know, basically ends with a, sort of a veiled threat where he talks about people like me who love baseball don't, be, don't like being called a racist by Major League Baseball, don't like Delta and and Coca-Cola calling us that, and we're going to object to it and going to push back. And if they continue in this direction, fine. Maybe Republicans don't have to drink Coca-Cola anymore. So, you know, it, 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 this is a very recent example of, as I said, you know, revisionist history. And, you know, that it's not the only one that's out there. Um, in his reply to the, the president's uh, speech before joint session of Congress, um, you know, uh, in, at the end of April, uh, Senator Tim Scott, uh, Republican of South Carolina, delivered the Republican response following President Biden's remarks to the joint session of Congress. And, you know, he made several statements in there that, you know, are not only you know, historically uh, incorrect, uh, but culturally insensitive and, you know, just, you know, offensive on many levels, uh, particularly to black people and people of color in this country, um, where he used that national platform to just make some very, very wrong statements. And there was a really good um, follow up to this in uh, which was it in uh, NPR wrote a very good fact check of the the speech and I'm going to go through and give you you know some of the highlights and then you know come forward with with my opinions on his speech and so forth um, in one section early in his speech uh, where he was talking about um, you know, locking where he was talking about schools not being allowed to be reopened. Uh, he, he stated locking vulnerable kids out of the classroom is locking adults out of their future. Our public schools should have reopened months ago. Other countries did. 
private and religious schools did. Science has shown for months that schools are safe. Now, the fact check uh, follows up by saying this implies that Biden or the U.S. government has been responsible for keeping schools closed. But decisions about reopening are made at the district level or in some cases at the state level based on COVID-19 rates and local conditions. Biden also promised to reopen schools, a pledge that was easier said than done. The science about children and COVID-19 has evolved drastically over the past year. Some early research suggested schools could be safely reopened, but most experts urged caution. So, you know, again, what seems to happen, and Senator Paul did this in his comments, and Senator Scott is doing this in his, is they are cherry-picking elements of, you know, historical fact to fit their narrative. Um, and, you know, through this are doing this revisionist history approach. Here's another one. Uh, he stated in his, his address, last year under Republican leadership, we passed five bipartisan COVID packages. Congress supported our schools, our hospitals, saved our economy, and funded Operation Warp Speed, delivering vaccines in record time. Um, and, you know, in the fact check, this is, you know, it states, um, and this is from NPR, uh, this is correct. While the Democrats control the House, Republicans control the Senate by a slim margin. So the GOP needed Democratic voices to meet the 60-vote threshold required to approve pandemic relief bills. As a result, both parties indeed negotiated a deal on all of the rescue legislation packages passed last year. And while President Biden has made some outreach to Republicans, Democrats passed his 1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill on strictly party lines. In other words, uh, when they were in power, the Republicans, you know, wholeheartedly supported the the first uh, pandemic response bill. But when the leadership in the three branches or two branches of government changed, now they opposed it. And hopefully we get time, we're going to touch on something that came up in the news just recently that, that further looks at that. In another comment, you know, in, in responding to the call that President Biden put out about his uh, family plan, Senator Scott said, uh, we should be expanding opportunities and options for all families and throwing money at certain issues because Democrats think they know best infrastructure spending that shrinks our economy is not common sense. And, you know, the, the fact checkers wrote, Biden's infrastructure proposal remains largely a contentious issue for Republicans. The GOP opposes the price tag for Biden's $2 trillion plan. Republicans' own proposal is smaller, uh, some $588 billion. Democrats have said they want a bipartisan deal but they have also threatened to ultimately pass the plan via a legislative move known as reconciliation to bypass a lack of GOP support for their larger proposal. So let's, let's break that one down a little bit. Um, you know, the Republicans have on many occasions um, talked about how the Democrats, now that they control both the House and the Senate, are ramriding these plans through uh, and, you know, are not voting for them, yet 
as we've just recently seen in some tweets that have gone out from Republican congressmen in various parts of the country, they are now, you know, praising, you know, promoting and taking credit for elements of the bill that they did not vote for. And that's also something we need to bring to their attention and question on why they are now so enthusiastic about these uh, these uh, elements of the bill when you know they could have voted for it and shown that support in an even stronger way. You know, he he went on in his speech, and I mean there there were a bunch of them. He went on in his speech to talk about uh, you know weakening our southern borders and creating a crisis is not compassionate. The, you know, the president also abandoning principles he's held for decades. Now he says your tax dollars should fund abortions. He's laying groundwork to pack the Supreme Court. This is not common ground. Well, you know, he's clearly we have come out of four years of you know, very partisan approach to all of these elements. Um, you know, former president, you know, Donald Trump. Uh, allocated, you know, a billion dollars for the border wall between the U.S. and Mexico. Uh, he has advocated and supported efforts to to end abortions in this country, whether you, whether you believe in that or not, and so forth. Um, just you know, stating the fact. Uh, as far as the Supreme Court, uh, yes, Joe Biden has discussed the possibility of adding. Uh, an additional number of judges to take the number of judges in the on the highest court to 13. Uh, that is, you know, a controversial plan that is under heavy discussion uh, in the House and Senate as we speak. Um, you know, one of the others, uh, and he talked about, you know, how being an African American who's voted in the South his entire life, and how seriously and personally he takes voting. Republicans support making it easier to vote and harder to cheat, and, and so do the voters. Big majorities of Americans support early voting and big majorities support voter ID, including African Americans and Hispanics. Now what he's leaving out there is the elements of some 43 bills that would either restrict early voting hours, uh, eliminate you know, Sunday voting or you know, so-called sole sort of polls, uh, approaches that are are popular and effective in the black community and other communities of color and other measures that would you know disenfranchise not just black Americans but would would make it more difficult for people in rural communities and other areas of the country to vote um, you know he goes on to talk you know about some of the problems that have been expressed with the uh, the bill signed into law in Georgia, and, and by extension, some of the others. Um, you know, it, it is it, it is just a, an amazing collection of revisionist history that we have to you know not only listen to with a third ear, but think about with our whole mind. Um, a lot of you know notions have been brought forward based on so-called facts of history that are incomplete or, you know, at worst, incorrect, uh, that have been cherry-picked, you know, and these are just a few. Um, you know, there, there have been a, any number of cases where, you know, historical precedents have been cited, um, you know, much like as, as Senator, Senator Paul did in his statements, 
and you know Senator Senator Scott is making here with his that you know that history is being you know revised as we speak. Uh, if you remember, there was a, a huge amount of controversy and still continues to be controversy over the inclusion of the 1619 Project, which is a study that was done, uh, an award-winning study that was done on a, a real look at the history of you know, Africans uh, brought to this country you know, in 1619 and the impact that, you know, black people have made in this country you know in the in the 500 years since um, and you know many areas and many politicians have come out and said they don't want the school districts to teach this you know we spend every February uh, in in Black History Month and you know our, our children are taught a, a very watered-down version of you know black history in this country um, you know, mostly but not exclusively revolving around, you know, some key major figures throughout history, you know, and, and of course, you know, Dr. King is at the top of that list and Malcolm X and, you know, and Rosa Parks and, and others, you know, um, but the, the impact and the effect that people of African descent have had on this country. And, and that's not to exclude contributions made by other you know, minority groups, uh, racial or ethnic minorities. Um, you know, the, the, the Asian community has made uh, great contributions to this country. Uh, the Italian community, the Irish community, the Polish community, you know, you could go on and on and on. All of these groups that have come to America have made, you know, outstanding con contributions to our history as a nation. And we really should be having that full-throated, fully rounded out discussion on the the benefits on the impacts and on the 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 positive things that you know people from other parts of the world have brought to this this experiment called America uh, so you know again call to action here you know we need to make sure that when we hear these type of revisionist history uh, messages being delivered that we call it out publicly and repeatedly to make sure that the record is set straight. You know, as, as we say all the time, if you get your information from only one source, you know, you're doing yourself a disservice unless you go out and seek information from other sources and, and ostensibly from all sources. You know, find the facts, dig wider, dig deeper, get to the truth. Then you can make an informed decision, informed comments, and help move the messaging forward. So with that note, we'll, uh, we'll wrap up this segment and wrap up the show. Uh, I want to thank you all, as, as I do every week, for tuning in. Um, you know, please make sure that when your opportunity comes to get the vaccine, that you take it. Please get the shot. Um, it, it is the best way to make sure that we can all get back to a more normal life. Uh, until then, you know, follow the protocols and guidelines that we all know so well, and uh, let's, let's keep ourselves, our communities, and our country safe. Everyone, take care. I will be back again next week with a new show. Uh, please stay safe. Remember, you're listening to us here on Fired Up. Any comments you have, please send your comments to firedupradio at yahoo.com. 
And until next week, I look forward to talking to you all again in seven days. Started yesterday, and we're already late.